Good morning, and a blessed Chinese New Year to those who are celebrating. And for those online, or if you're viewing this later for uh, practical reasons, uh, welcome. Uh, for those of you who don't know me, my name's Tim, and I'm one of the pastoral workers here at St. Mary's. And this morning, we'll be actually, I'll be preaching from the gospel passage that we've just read. Before we continue, let's just open with a prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your precious promises to us in your word that promises us true life, true prosperity, and true peace in you and in you alone. We thank you that in Christ you have saved us, that you have redeemed us, and you have made us your children. Help us, O Lord, to have a right expectation of what you are doing in our lives so that we may live for you. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So I'd like to begin our time together by thinking about expectations and reality. Uh, because more often than not, uh, reality does not match up to our expectations. And this could be in trivial ways, with uh, maybe trivial disappointments. For example, like my children, when I bring them to McDonald's, expecting for, to have an ice cream, only to meet with a disappointing reality that the ice cream machine is broken yet again. But there could also be more vital expectations when they're not met, lead to life-shattering consequences, like the expectations that our jobs will be secure, or the expectation that our bodies are not hiding some sort of terminal diagnosis, or that our trust, expectation that our trust in our friends and our spouses uh, are valid. But however, as, as vital as those things are, that when they are not met, they change one's life, they're not the most important expectation. The most vital expectation one could have is towards the, the question, who is Jesus Christ? Jesus means God saves. How does that play out? What does that mean for us? And that's the most important expectation for everyone because the consequences to, uh, to that, if it's not met, are eternal. Now, 2,000 years ago, at the time of Jesus, when we just read our gospel, the people of Jesus' day had expectations of the Christ, which just means Messiah, a promised Savior who would come. And of course, at the time, uh, they were living under Roman rule. So the expectation for God to save would be for God to overthrow the political power of that day in Rome. Still others were thinking, maybe not. It's been so long after all. Maybe God's not interested in, in political revival or renewal or revolution. Maybe God is after a spiritual revival to turn the hearts of the people back to him, to worship him rightly. And of course, like all things today, most people were within a mix of both, somewhere in between. And we will explore this expectation of the Christ in today's passage, starting with John the Baptist. And our very first verse of our passage kicks us off to what the setting is for the past two weeks, we've explored Matthew chapter 10, and we saw Jesus sending up his disciples on mission in pairs to the people of Israel. They were sent out, we read, as sheep among wolves to expect persecution, but yet they were not sent to the slaughter, but they were sent as powerful ambassadors of the kingdom that Christ is bringing in. And today we'll see how Matthew transitions from, from that mission to the next part of the narrative, which is the various responses people had towards Jesus' ministry. And we'll begin, like I said, by looking at the response of John the Baptist. 
Uh, if you follow the outline provided, uh, there are two parts to my sermon today. The first part is John's question to, to, to who are you, Jesus? Who are you really? And that's the first part, and that's uh, from verses 2 to 6. And the next part of my sermon, part 2, is really Jesus' teaching about John. Who is John really? And how does that answer the question of who Jesus is? And that will be from verses 7 to 15. And I hope for us to, to, to know from today's passage that Jesus is God who has come to save us as promised. So let's begin with John the Baptist's question in verse 2. Now we hear, see here in verse 2, number 1, John is in prison. He's in prison because he was calling out the corruption of the puppet Roman king set up in his region, which is Herod. He's calling out his infidelity, he's calling out his corruption, and therefore he was put in prison. And when he heard of the deeds of Christ, he sent his words to his disciples to ask Jesus, are you the one who is to come? Now, this is puzzling. The question is that, Jesus, are you the Messiah? Or have we been wrong? Are you another forerunner? Or should we wait, I mean, should we wait for someone else? And this is puzzling because earlier in the gospel, in Matthew chapter 3, we saw how John recognized Jesus' greatness, almost refusing to be baptized by Jesus, uh, to baptize Jesus, but rather needed to be baptized by Jesus. And we saw that John witnessed the Holy Spirit descending upon Jesus like a dove. And in other gospels we read, that was an evidence to John that this is the Messiah. That John had the privilege to see who the Messiah is, to be his forerunner. But yet we find him here asking, are you the one? John isn't so sure anymore because he hears the deeds of the Christ. What is Jesus doing? He hears what Jesus is doing. He's, he's partying with tax collectors, with prostitutes and sinners. And more importantly, he's hearing what Jesus is not doing, which is judging Rome, which is freeing John from the Roman prison. And, 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 and this uh, is, is laid bare in Matthew chapter 3, verse 10 to 12. John, preaching this, says, The axe is at the fruit of the tree. Every tree that does not bear fruit will be cut down. I baptize you with water, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat in the barn, but the chaff will burn with unquenchable fire. John preached repentance. He preached judgment. But that judgment didn't come. Now, before I go on, I'd just like to comment a bit. If it's possible for John, a great prophet like John, to doubt, what about, what about us? What more us? You see, when life doesn't play out the way that we would expect it to, it's very natural for questions to come in. Why would God allow this to happen? Why hasn't God done something about my situation? Haven't I been faithful? Does God care? Is, is God even there? Now, those are real and weighty questions in that moment of hurt and of loss. And I'm here to say that it is okay in those moments to have questions, to doubt. But we need to be bringing those questions and those doubts to Jesus. And that's what John did. We're not meant to just rot away with our questions, but we are meant to be invited to bring them to Jesus. So let's see how Jesus responds to John's questions. In verse 4, so Jesus answered, 
Go and tell John what you hear and see. And he lists a whole list of miracles. Uh, The blind, the lame, the lepers, the deaf are, are healed, the dead are raised, and the poor have good news. Preach to them. That's what Jesus says. In effect, what does Jesus do? He points John back to the Old Testament. Many times the answers to our questions and doubts are already in the Scriptures, laid out for us, revealed to us. But we don't see it. Perhaps maybe because in our mind, we have an answer that we want. And so often, with that answer in mind, we miss the answer that God wants to give us. So let's look at what Jesus draws from. He draws heavily from two passages in Isaiah, which I'll be putting up on the screen. First, from Isaiah 35. Strengthen the weak hands, make firm the feeble knees. Say to those who have an anxious heart, be strong, fear not. Behold, your Lord your God will come with vengeance, with the recompense of God, he will come and save you. And here we have the blind, the the deaf, the lame, and the mute all being healed. But notably, what's missing here is the vengeance and recompense of God. It's missing. And next, uh, Jesus also quotes from Isaiah 61, which he also reads in Luke 4. Isaiah 61 verse 1. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, Because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. That's what Jesus is doing. Good news of his salvation to the poor. But we read on. He sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound. And notably again, missing here, is the liberty to the captive or opening of prisons. Because the time was not right for it yet. There will come a time when that happens. But Jesus is telling John, I won't do this. Not yet. So how shall we understand Jesus' answer completely? Number one, yes, Jesus is the one who has come. John, you were not wrong to put your faith in me. Okay? Number two, he has come to save the world. Jesus has come to heal, to reverse the effects of sin, to save the world. Yes. But number three, his salvation is not what you expect it to be. That's why he ends with verse 6 in this section. Blessed is the one who is not offended by me. Jesus tells John, his cousin, hold your faith, hold your trust. You were right to believe in me. Blessed is the one who is not stumbled by me, by your wrongful expectations on me. To, To call John to take his eyes off his wrongful expectations to see that God truly has fulfilled his promises in the Messiah to come. And this leads us to our first principle, that Jesus is the promised Savior. Now, how should we view this list of, uh, this laundry list of miracles Jesus has said? Today, the blinds receive their sight, the lame walk, the lepers are healed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, the poor have the gospel preached to them. But we look around, we look around our world and see that they're all still here, they're all still in the same state. What's God doing? If Jesus proclaimed it, isn't it true? What's he really doing? See, my friends, God does not merely want to save us from our circumstances and difficulties in this life. He's not about changing or making your life better in the immediate sense that most of us would expect. The reality is that what we need is not a change of our circumstances or situation, not not a more peaceful or prosperous life on this earth, and then we die. That's not what we need. Our greatest need, don't miss this, our greatest need is for God himself 
God is abounding in life and in love and in goodness. He's beautiful. He alone is wonderful. That nothing on this earth can satisfy our deepest longings like God can. Because we were made to be satisfied by nothing less than God himself, the infinite and holy God. If that's our greatest need, our greatest problem then is that our sin separates us from God. Now, our sin is not just that something passively happened to us. Our sin is our active rejection of God, telling God, God, I don't want you. I don't want you in my life. I just want your stuff. Give me your benefits, but none of you. God, please leave my career alone. Leave my spending habits alone. Leave my lifestyle alone. Don't touch them, please. And stay in your lane. Stay in church on the Sunday morning and that's it, God. Don't touch the rest of my life. And that's sin. Saying, God, I don't want you. And that's our greatest problem. Because our sin actually separates us from God. And sin is so disappointing because it, it robs us of God's best, of himself. And in, in substitute, it gives us something pathetic that will not last fleeting pleasures that vanish like the mist. And sin is evil because in separating us from the eternal life found in God, the only consequence left is eternal death. That sin is evil and corruption rightfully leads to death. So Jesus has come to save us from our sin, to bring us into his kingdom, into God's kingdom. And unbeknownst to John, That was what his ministry was about. It's about heralding Jesus in the bringing in of God's kingdom. So let's see that in detail in in the next verses in verse 7. So the crowd that Jesus was speaking to knew of John's ministry. They perhaps went to John and and were baptized, some of them, by him. And from the outside, Jesus' answer was purely to John, personally, to tell John, hold fast, don't let go. But to the outside hearer, perhaps it seems as if Jesus was very dismissive of John. Look at the Old Testament. Don't stumble and go. So here Jesus sets the record straight. John is a beloved prophet. And he does so in verse uh, 7 by asking rhetorical questions to the audience. What do you go out in the wilderness? What do you travel so far away from the comfort of your homes to see? And he gives two things. Number one, a reed shaken by the wind or a man dressed in soft clothing. Now, what what this is, is things that obviously John isn't. A reed swayed by the wind, a a person that flip-flops between Jew and Rome. No, John stood fast. He stood fast against persecution to the point of proclaiming his convictions that he was thrown in prison. John was no reed. In the same way, John was not a, a person that enjoyed the pleasures of life, of soft clothing, of a noble position. No. John was an ascetic. He, he dressed in coarse camel, camel hair and he preached the, the word with boldness as he did so. So Jesus is saying, obviously you didn't go to see these things. What do you see then? You went to see a prophet. But more than you were ever expecting. Because he quotes here in verse 10. John is a prophet, yes. But more than that, he is a prophet who fulfills prophecy. So we read in Malachi 3 verse 1, and I'll put the whole verse up on the screen for us. Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. 
The Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. Who is speaking? The Lord of hosts, Yahweh Sabaoth, God of heaven armies. That's who he is, the mighty conquering God. And he is saying, I am sending my messenger. Jesus in quoting Malachi tells us that John is the messenger making the way. But for who? For God of the heaven armies. And that's Jesus. Jesus in so much he's saying to the effect, I am God who has come. And, and in so much as this is the kingdom that Jesus is bringing in, that's John's ministry has implications on the, the, the kingdom that Jesus is inaugurating. And we'll see this in verses 11 to 15. Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there's arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. I just said that Jesus is not belittling or dismissing John here. No, please don't read that rightly. Right? Please don't read that in that way. We'll see later okay, how on John's greatness. But rather, uh, as great as John is, and we'll see, John is the greatest Old Testament prophet. As great as John is, the least in the kingdom of heaven is yet greater. And that's because of the surpassing nature of the kingdom that Jesus is bringing. That even the least in this kingdom is greater than the greatest prophet. Because all who are in this kingdom, don't miss this, all who are in this kingdom are in Christ through faith. We enter into kingdom, the kingdom of God through faith by trusting in Christ, by believing in Him. And the Bible tells us, when we put our faith in Christ, we are united with Him. That Christ, the eternal Son of God, became as we were. He entered into humanity so that when He died an innocent death on the cross as a punishment He didn't deserve, the punishment was ours. That when we, were uni when we are united with Him in faith, our, the, our sins that deserve punishment are united with the punishment that he paid for us fully on the cross. And likewise, still being united with him as he rose in resurrection power, we too are raised with him. We become as he is, as the eternal son of God who enjoys a loving relationship with God the Father. We get to enjoy that too and call God Father that we get to rule with Christ in, in a kingdom that has no sin, a kingdom that has no suffering, a kingdom that has no death, no selfishness, a kingdom where everything is perfectly done according to God's goodness and a kingdom that will not pass away, an eternal kingdom. And that's the kingdom of God. But as great as the kingdom is, one stark reality is that this kingdom is not of this earth. So this earth will always seek to reject it and, and, and do what they can to, to kill it. And that's verse 12. The days of John the Baptist till now, the kingdom of heaven is suffered violence and the violent will try to seize it by force. And that's what happened to John. John was thrown in a Roman prison for proclaiming the kingdom. And we know in hindsight that Christ too will suffer at the hands of the Romans being crucified on the cross. They will try, but they won't succeed. And in verse 13 is where we see how Jesus uh, sees John. You see, we look at the Old Testament, in our, we open our Bibles, it ends with Malachi. 
And Jesus is saying, no. For the law, the prophets and the law prophesied until John. He will extend the period of the Old Testament all the way to the, the, the preaching of John the Baptist. He is the greatest Old Testament prophet. But unfortunately, as we read in Matthew 14, he will die in a Roman prison, beheaded. He won't see this kingdom come to pass. So Jesus ends with 14 and 15, verse 14 and 15. If you're willing to accept it, he is Elijah who is to come. He who has an ear, ears to hear, let him hear. So again, Jesus quotes Malachi in chapter 4, verse 5. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. He will come to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. And this was the judgment John was hoping to see, that Jesus is saying, not yet. It will happen, but not yet. It will come. This judgment will come. Make no mistake, friends. Judgment will come because Jesus has come. And that's our, second, our last principle for the day, that Jesus is God who has come. So in, in, in summary, let's, let's match our expectations to God's reality as we've seen. That what most of us or out there would expect as the ultimate good to have a happy family, to have a fulfilling job that pays well, to have happy relationships among friends and be a part of a caring community and society where everyone wants each other's goods. These are good things, but they're not ultimate things. And in this life, all these good things will result in disappointment because we are all marred by sin. Because we are sinful, because we are selfish, people will argue over money. People will be selfish. We will be greedy. And they're not ultimate because by putting our hope in these things, we will be disappointed because they are not God. Again, the reality is that our soul's deepest longing and desire, we will not be satisfied by anything less than God himself. So the amazing good news is that God himself has come to save us, to bring us back to him, even when we weren't looking for him, that he made the way for us to come back to him. Isn't that amazing? Will we have ears to hear this? Jesus is God who has come to save us as promised. So if today, let's come back to that question. What's your expectation of who Jesus Christ is? If perhaps maybe today you only know him distantly as someone, maybe a guy who lived 2,000 years ago, said some awesome stuff, which, why, which is why it lasted 2,000 years. You, know, you only know him distantly. May I invite you to reconsider Jesus is so much more than just a good teacher. He is God who has come to save you and save me by making us a, a child of his eternal kingdom. Would you believe in him, make him your Lord, and be united with him today for eternity? And for the rest of us who profess to believe in him, my question is this, will we continue to allow ourselves to be disappointed when God doesn't give us his stuff or change our circumstances? Or will we rather bring our doubts and our questions to him, knowing that he cares for us, knowing that he embraces this and wants us to come to him and be willing to have our expectations changed by his truth, by his reality, so that we can receive the ultimate comfort of knowing him through our tragedies and our pain. Let us pray. Father, we thank you, Lord, 
that there is nothing that's too hard for you. We thank you that you are at work always drawing us to you because we need you. Forgive us for the times, O Lord, where we've been so forgetful, distracted, so busy by the things of this world that we forget that we need you. Remind us once again, even in this season, to be drawing to you, to be pointing others to you, and to be repenting and seeking you, O Lord, above all else. Be with us because we can only do so in your strength. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.